Welcome to episode 20 of Turning the Goldfields Green. Today we are looking at the environmental impact of our digital world with Michael Linke, who lives in Newstead, just 10 minutes out of Castlemaine. Michael runs a not-for-profit email service that makes your emailing as green as it can be. We talk about what the physical requirements of our digital world really are and what costs they have for the environment. And then we discuss what choices we, the consumers, have. Today's episode was recorded, produced and airs on Jara country, home of the Jajawrung, whose sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to Indigenous or First Nation elders, past, present and emerging, here, around Australia and around the world. Salt. 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 Yeah. Salt. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. Michael, tell me a bit about yourself and how it is that you have started your green email business. Okay. I grew up in Germany. I studied computer science there and uh, worked a little bit in research. And I came to Australia six years ago to live with my partner here and a little bit of traveling in between. And I would say that probably my mom already influenced me a lot about yeah the environment and Go, mom. to live sustainably. Yeah. And that, that just influenced my perspective on everything and learning more about computers and how they work. It's fascinating. The internet uh, gives us so many opportunities. Mm. Especially in lockdown. Imagine being locked down without access to the outside world via the internet. Oh, yeah, definitely. It would be so difficult to communicate. Yeah, it would be a lot <laughs> I'm, lonelier. I'm so glad now being in Australia, I can actually still call my mom almost for free. Yeah, exactly. And see how she's going, make sure she's all right. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that lead to your green e-business? Well, I think just understanding more of how it all works. You also see um, the cost of it all. And what's involved, all, all the complex things and technology that are kind of hidden from the consumer, because people don't know. And in a lot of cases, also, they don't pay for things directly. Yeah. Like a lot of finance with advertising. And that means that people actually don't know how much it costs. Yeah, sure. To see a website or to be able to email and to watch things. Yeah, but it has a big impact. I, l- I looked it up at some point and apparently the whole internet, everything together is like 2% of the global carbon emissions, which is pretty similar to all aviation, like all flights in the world. That's amazing, isn't it? That's pretty huge. Yeah, so that's the ballpark figure. It is huge. So I, I guess it's... Um... Like a lot of people just, they get their phone and they might be aware of the fact that, you know, some rare minerals have to be mined from somewhere to do it. And so they're conscious of that as an ethical issue with their e-devices. And we're all feeling pretty proud of ourselves for not printing all of our emails or printing all of our correspondence and stuff and making it all digital. But there is a hidden cost to the environment in using all of these digital platforms, isn't there? Can you tell us a bit more about what the, the cost to the environment is? Yeah, so one big difference to 
older media like books, for example, is that internet is all based on computers and electronics, which need power all the time. So if you print a book, you do that once, and then you can read it as often as you like. You don't need any more electricity. But with digital, it's different. So if you, if you go to your computer and you enter the name of the website, that computer, it talks to your Wi-Fi box and that one talks to your internet service provider. And there it goes from computer to computer, has several connections, and there are cables everywhere in between, and they all need power until it comes to a computer that actually stores the website you want to see. And that takes your request, okay, you want to watch, uh, you want to see that website and then looks up that website on the hard drive and sends it back to you. And in all that, there's a lot of infrastructure involved, all the cables in between and all the computers on the way. And even just the buildings that the computers are housed in and... Yes. Yeah, they're huge data centers. It's like a huge warehouse. I don't know. I, I sometimes think of it's like a library where every book is a computer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and the computers need to be powered, but they also produce a lot of warmth. And then these centers need to be air conditioned. That's a huge cost as well. So they all need to be room temperature. And that's very expensive. It's very expensive for the environment as well as to the hip pocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In one of the earlier episodes, uh, I talked about the cost of refrigerants, which is, of course, in your air conditioning units. And they are one of one of the worst things for the environment if they're not taken care of responsibly at the end of the life cycle of that piece of machinery, the air conditioning unit or the fridge. It's, it's one of the worst things for our greenhouse gas emissions and things like that. So that's definitely something to be mindful of. And we don't have any control over how these companies are managing their offices and their warehouses and all of the things that go with it like their air conditioners yeah to a degree i mean luckily uh because it's all cost uh they try to minimize these expenses but there's also a growing awareness of that and a lot of big companies are now publishing how much carbon footprint they actually have and they try to minimize that and people have a choice I mean, if you run a website, you can ask for a green provider. You can host your website somewhere where it's more green, where, for example, they use carbon offsets or where there's hydropower to run the service. And you can choose to be more efficient with your website as well. For example, not have too many big videos or big images there. Think of how you transport uh, your message or how you, yeah, bring the message across without wasting too much. And that has a big impact as well. Yeah, so the more images and videos there are, the more memory there has to be held in some server somewhere far away. Yeah, and for example, a news website, a lot of them have more than half of their traffic advertising. Yeah. So that's how they, they fund themselves. That's not actually what you want to see. You want to read news, but most effort, most electricity is actually consumed by advertising, which is not needed. Yeah, which I guess given that most news sources are free to consume, they do have to have advertising to stay afloat as a business. Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one, definitely. All right, so what options are there? You have created a not-for-profit organization that offers ethical emails. So what does that mean? Yeah, so that's just focusing on email, one part. So we try to be very sustainable, which means 
we use a server in Australia, so the data doesn't travel that far and doesn't use as many intermediate computers and power on the way. The company we kind of rent the server from, they're carbon neutral, so they buy carbon offset. It would be great to have renewable energy for that, but I'm not aware of a single hosting provider in Australia that actually does that. So Australia needs to catch up there a bit and we need yeah, different sources of energy. You can purchase green power in your electricity plan, but I guess it doesn't mean you're actually using green power. It just means that yeah. the energy provider is committing to invest in renewables a certain amount, but you're probably still consuming coal, coal-fired power. Exactly. So it's a calculated balance. Yeah. So it's basically like carbon offsetting as well. We try to make our website as efficient as possible, not using big flashy images that are not needed and just trying to choose technology that is very efficient. We don't have any ad, which means that people also need to pay for the service to also be aware of what it costs and to be transparent there. So it's a direct transaction. And I guess as a not-for-profit, you can charge an amount without people going, oh, you're just making a bunch of money off us. Yes, of course. Yeah, um, I'm a real fan of not-for-profits, I think, because I think every purpose of a company should be for the people and it should be for the purpose and not for someone else's profit. And that's, yeah, that's what we are doing here. Yeah, great. So all the money people pay for their email service actually goes into developing that email service and running it. Yeah, great. So the question I was thinking of earlier was, I think in in my head and possibly in a lot of people's minds, there's not actually physical cables running our data around. It gets beamed up into a satellite and then beamed back down. But what you're saying is that's not actually true. Yeah, so of course, if you use your mobile, you send signals to the nearest antenna, which is probably in a few kilometers radius. But from there on, it's cables. That is the most efficient way. Sending the signals to satellites and back would be too slow. So they're actually cables and they're they're cables between the continents. Like we have a cable from Sydney to the USA and it's 10,000 kilometers long. Really? Yes. And it just goes along the ocean, through the ocean? Yes, it goes through the ocean and it needs electricity to send the signal. Wow. And does it come up at Hawaii and get a boost and then keep going or something like that? I'm not sure if it's Hawaii, but there, yeah, there are some islands on the way where, um, yeah, it goes first and then goes further on. Yeah. And how does it not get like bumped by a whale or hit by a ship? It must be a certain depth. It's a certain depth and they, um, yeah, it's a pretty solid construction as well. That's amazing. There were cases actually, I think the east coast of the US at some point they had connection problems and it turned out that a shark bit into a cable. <laughs> That shark was like, you're in my way, chomp. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I can imagine all sorts of like coral reefs and, and seaweeds growing on it and it becoming part of the ocean. Yeah. Kind of like Would be interesting to send a camera all along and to see what's actually happening there. Yeah. That's incredible. And that's happening all around the world. Uh, is there any other interesting facts about the, the, the hidden environmental costs or this hidden systems of... Our digital lifestyle? There are some calculations. For example, each gigabyte we transfer over the internet has an equivalent of five kilowatt hours of electricity to make that happen. So it's like, I don't know, you, you watch a whole movie and it would cost you a dollar 
or dollar fifty or something like that on your electricity bill. And in reality, it's not on the electricity bill. Of course, it's on your internet bill. But that's that's the cost you usually don't think about. Yeah. And I think the majority of servers and these big warehouses are often in these companies like Google or, you know, Microsoft or whoever are going to put their warehouses in the cheapest possible place to store all this stuff and then also and the cheapest running costs for them. Is that true? Mm, For the cheapest running costs, yeah, that is true that they place them in certain countries. Most of the cost is not labor. Most of the cost is electricity and the energy of of cooling and so on. So one trend is to use cooler countries, like Scandinavian countries, for example, and they also have a lot of hydropower. So they have cheap electricity and more sustainable electricity there. And that is, yeah, the cheapest way to run such a warehouse, to be somewhere where it's cool and you have cheap power. And then they also need to spread all the data centers around the world because if we try if the whole world tried to access uh, data centers in Scandinavia then kind of the cables wouldn't be enough to transport it all so if there is particular content that's popular in Australia then that should be served from within Australia should be stored in Australia so there are data centers in Australia as well there are data centers on every continent in every country yeah I guess that, you know, ultimately there are some efficiencies happening there and some good for the environment solutions happening, but it's there's no way to there's not very many companies that are actually making that transparent to the consumer. So you guys at your ethical email service use Digital Pacific and they are very transparent about what they do and how they store things and their energy usage and all of that sort of thing. But not most of them aren't. Like we, we're really oblivious. As consumers, I think most of us are really oblivious about all of these hidden mechanisms, aren't we? Yeah, I think that's true. And a lot of that is, yeah, not being aware of how it all works because you just see your screen and that's how you interact with everything. And it's probably also not good for business to tell people the negative impact of what your actions uh, have. <laughs> yeah. They just want you to spend more time on the website and interact more with the website and so on. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, I think doing like a uh, an online call with someone into video call is still a lot more efficient than actually driving there or taking a flight somewhere to, to visit someone. Mm. So a lot with working from home and so on there is probably yeah it's more efficient to do it that way yeah because there's been a lot there's a huge increase in in zoom calls and phone calls and and working from home with the pandemic and also a, a significant drop in flights and all of those sort of things do you know is there any data yet about like the cost benefits the increase in use of servers or anything like that no yeah, I haven't seen that data yet. I would, uh, yeah, I'm really curious. I'm waiting for that as well. I would love to see uh, more of that impact. The aviation industry shutting down, there has been definitely a huge drop in carbon emissions. And the internet has been quite well in scaling as well. So um, if you scale up and you have double the amount of websites and double the amount of users it's often not double the amount of electricity used which is good the technological progress things become faster and more efficient 
So tell us a bit more about the environmentally friendly email not-for-profit you run and some of the other cool projects you support. Yeah, so in Germany, where I come from, there is, yeah, like an association of, of hackers who make a congress every year. And hackers not in a way that they uh, break into other people's computers and destroy things. Um, hackers used as a term of people who are curious about technology and try to use it in different ways and uh, more creative ways and maybe more efficient ways as well. And they, they host this, yeah, this Congress every year. I love the name. Yeah. The Chaos Communication <laughs> Congress. It's awesome. <laughs> and it's often about, um, yeah, like privacy or how we can do programming and computers better and what the politics are involved. And yeah, the last Congress was dedicated to the topic of climate change and what impact do we actually have? And they were then reviewing, for example, which programming language is more efficient and leads to software that has a smaller carbon footprint just because the calculations on the computer are more efficient. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that's, I think, my profession looking at itself as well in all the climate change context and thinking, okay, how can we do better? How can we make websites more efficient? That's really encouraging to know that there are people really thinking about that on that level. Yeah, it's, it's a huge topic. I mean, climate change is still the, the biggest threat to us at the moment, and it's the thing we need to act on the most urgently. Yeah, absolutely. Did we give you a little plug for your business? Like, did you... Oh, and you also mentioned that you support the Open Food Network and things like that. Should we talk about how those things, how what sort of things you do in your yeah, in your okay. business and how you how you sort of support other cool organisations? Well, my main occupation is uh, with the Open Food Network. So I work there four days a week. Well, I work from home, <laughs> working with the people there four days a week, working on software on a software platform that the Open Food Network provides, which is basically like an online shop where farmers can sell their produce directly or farmers markets can be organized there to have a common shop run for all the stalls at the market and then organize pickup and food hubs, cooperatives and all these things are supported. And yeah, other people in my team help advising enterprises on how to run a viable business how do you run the processes? How do you organize maybe the packing sheets and which software do you use? How do you do invoicing? All these kind of things. How do we create a more sustainable supply chain with local trade without some of the big downsides of the supermarkets, which take much bigger cuts and don't give much back to the farmers? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that there are some locals here in Castlemaine and Harcourt who are using the Open Food Network, the Harcourt Food Co-op the group of young farmers out there are using it to sell their things and seem to be having some success with it. Yeah, exactly. It w that was quite interesting to work with them and just see how kind of like a novel business organization uh, fits in and we try to support that all. And then we found for them new ways for invoicing and how they organize common shop front and sell as cooperative but then work out which produce comes from which business in the cooperative and how to do that efficiently so that there's less admin left more time to do their job <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, definitely. No, that's great. I think helping out small businesses like that is a brilliant thing to do. So that's your main job. And then the ethical email is your passion project on the side that you yourself are running. Yeah. Ethical mail was really born when I came to Australia and I thought I need a new email address here. And because my old one was pretty German. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And uh, I was just uh, wondering, yeah, where I find a good email address and with a green hosting that doesn't cost the earth. And I couldn't find anything really. So I first looked at a German provider that's really good. Yeah. But I found that A, slow from here to access because it goes through all these undersea cables. The other thing was that, yeah, I wanted to start something more sustainable. And that's where I then chose to found a not-for-profit, really. So I created an association and set out some some rules, like a little mission statement that we want to be efficient and secure, that privacy is really important for us. And we don't want to show any ads because that just creates overheads. And ads often come with tracking of users as well, which is a privacy concern and just needs more computing as well. Yeah, we just try to be as sustainable as possible and transparent as we can yeah yeah that's great obviously you've been doing it for about eight years now and it's <laughs> still chugging along i came to australia six years ago and i think i started this project four maybe four and a half years ago i'm be four now yeah yeah and it's, it's chugging along we haven't invested in any big media campaigns or anything like that so we didn't have a huge influx of users it's slow but steady growth which i also like because we are quite slow team and if we had suddenly heaps of inquiries we might struggle which is maybe a little bit of a fallout as well if someone else is in the community and wants to help out and do stuff i'm i'm happy to work with people and get people involved to help out yeah great when you contacted me i was thinking what can people take away from this what actions can we actually take because we can't influence some of these big uh, internet companies. But some things I thought of was, of course, if you if you have a website or yeah, use things online, you can look out for green hosting alternatives and there are websites to help you with. Uh, we can probably put that in the links section. Another thing I thought of is actually installing an ad blocker in your browser. That's something that for a lot of people, that's just normal. That's what they do, and other people don't know about it. So you can just install a blocker, and suddenly you don't get ads anymore. Yeah, so that's for websites. Um, so it's in your browser, if you use Firefox or Chrome or whatever, you can install a little plugin, and it filters all the advertising on all websites. In some cases, even if you watch like catch up tv online that can cut some of the ads out there (laughs) wow which is a huge win for your bandwidth it's all quicker you're less distracted Hmm. and it makes it all greener yeah because you're just consuming less data exactly yeah yeah great tip so is there a particular thing to look up when you're doing that one good plugin is called adblock plus yeah for most websites it just works really well there are some websites where you will find that the website kind of tries to detect that and then gives you a message of, oh, we don't tolerate ad blocking. Some of the news websites do that. 
and then maybe you have to deactivate it for that one website. So you can pause it and then reactivate it. Yeah, or you can just say, just deactivate it for this website, but the rest of the web is still ad-free. Yeah, great. Yeah. All right, well, we'll put a link to maybe that one and a few others as well. Yeah. Another thing I thought of is also just cleaning up a little bit the digital life. Like if there are old emails or files you really don't use anymore, you don't need anymore, cleaning them up, deleting them, actually helps because the fewer files we need to store on the internet, which need to be available 24-7 to be viewed, the fewer hard drives need to be produced and installed and run all the time. So if we want to reduce the impact of the internet, we can just reduce what we store there. That's interesting because like, I quite like Gmail because you can infinitely store everything and never have to delete anything. But now you're making me think I really should go through and delete all those emails that are ancient and really I'm never going to look at again. Yeah. Especially all the spam. They want you to use it. They want to make it very easy and they want the profile of you. Because the biggest revenue for Google is advertising. So every email you keep gives them information about the sort of things you're interested in. Um, I think they used to do that. They used to read emails with like a robot program to analyze people's um, interests. They said they wouldn't do that anymore because all the metadata they get, like with whom you email or how often you're online and which websites you use, are enough for their profiles now. Okay, mm. so they don't even need all that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, it's a whole other yeah. world, isn't it? Because we hear repeatedly people expressing concerns about privacy and how much these big companies are, are mining our use of their stuff for, for their own purposes. And a lot of it is probably relatively benign because they're just trying to find appropriate advertising for us. But it's a whole other world of, mm. of things to consider. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, in these times... I don't want to tell people don't watch anything online or whatever or try not to call your friends because it's important and it's yeah the internet is very useful and we can use it to learn and also learn about sustainability oh yeah and the internet's not going to go away so but it would be interesting to think about how to perhaps get active to encourage our different providers to go green and just use renewable energy and make sure that their warehouses full of hard drives are actually being cooled by renewable power and all of that sort of stuff. Like those sort of campaigns can work and can change the the habits of businesses like that. Because I don't think any of us want to shut the internet down right now. (laughs) No. (laughs) But there are ways that we can um, put pressure on the, the companies to help them transition to perhaps a greener way of operating yes and one challenge there is that these computers are running 24 7 so they need electricity 24 7 and we need power solutions that run 24 7 as well like some power plants that can yeah supply electricity at night or some of these data centers have to see if they can maybe shut down some of the computers at night when people are sleeping and not surfing too much yeah, but then you get your insomniacs who will be awake at night, <laughs> looking at the internet the most during the night time. Uh, yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, there, there are definitely usage patterns. Um, most websites uh, have very low traffic at 4 a.m. when everyone is sleeping, 
and during the day, depending on the website, what kind of services it is, it is there's definitely more traffic. And you you can optimize that if you if you run that infrastructure and you run the website and all the services, you have more control there. You can try to downscale at night a bit to use less electricity. That was Michael Linke talking about how our increasingly digitalized world is impacting the environment. I have put a bunch of links related to the things we were talking about in the links section of the podcast. So that's saltgrass.podbean.com. Some of them are really interesting, like an infographic about the carbon footprint of the internet and also a map showing where all the data cables are running through the oceans of the world. So if you're listening on the radio, check out saltgrass.podbean.com. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, well, you know where to look. Now, a little segment I like to call... How the frick are you supposed to recycle that? So another part of the digital equation that Michael and I touched on but did not go into depth about is the impact of the actual devices that help us consume everything that is on the web. From smartphones to TV screens, tablets, computers and even fridges, e-waste is anything with a plug, power cord or battery, and it is an ever-increasing problem. Each new item we buy requires some more of the Earth's resources. Some of them are quite rare. And every time we throw out an item, these resources are lost to landfill, where some elements of the digital devices can be toxic. An article in The Conversation said that globally, the world produces as much as 50 million tonnes of electric e-waste a year, worth over $62.5 billion US, and more than the GDP of most countries and only about 20% of this e-waste is actually recycled. So again, you can see the link to that article and all other information I'm about to give on the podcast page, which is saltgrass.podbean.com. The Victorian government banned all e-waste from landfill back in July 2019, so about a year ago. And that means e-waste cannot go into a bin. It must be taken to be recycled. If you're feeling a little cynical about how much of a smartphone or any other electronic device can actually be recycled, check out the Sustainability Victoria webpage on recycling e-waste. So what they say is that depending on the type of device, some manual disassembly may occur. Batteries and casings are removed. Steel casings are separated from the plastic. Cartridges and toners are detached from printers. The glass from TVs and, and computer monitors, especially old school ones, can be separated to avoid the release of any toxic lead or mercury that could be in there. After that is all taken apart, there is a process of shredding. Once it's shredded, it also gets a second round of sorting and they use magnets to remove metals. They use eddy currents and things to separate other metals. They use infrared beams or x-rays and they use water to separate plastic from glass, all sorts of stuff. And then once it's all been separated, it 
gets taken away and made into its new form. So the plastic from e-waste can be turned into fence posts or pallets or toys or keyboards and batteries get turned into new batteries. Precious metals like gold and things like that can be turned into jewelry or reused in electronics. Glass can go back into screens for TVs and monitors or be turned into homewares and metals can be recycled indefinitely or turned into cables which we know now that we need a lot of to span the oceans of the world apparently. So that's what happens to things when they get the e-waste when they get recycled so almost every part of it it seems can can be reused and recycled. If you're in Victoria here in Australia you can find out where your local drop-off points are by going to Sustainability Victoria's website. They have heaps of great information and you can search by postcode for the closest spot to where you live. It's interesting to note that here in Castlemaine you have to pay fees for e-waste. The smaller it is the less you pay. For example you pay a dollar per item for phones or small toys but large items like fridges or TVs can be up to $20 an item. However, if you make a trip up to Bendigo, just half an hour drive away, you could drop your e-waste to any one of several locations there for free. And I think it depends on your local council and the waste recovery provider that they have contracted. So do a little research. It could be worthwhile to make a little trip to get rid of your e-waste a little bit more affordably. It's a very bad thing. Let me just say it's a very bad thing to dump your fridges and things in the bush or anywhere else it's not even something you should consider for lots of reasons but one of them is that if the refrigerant gases escape they are some of the worst greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and do a lot of damage and take us closer to dangerous climate change faster so don't do it don't do it whatever you do Um, so it's not that hard to take care of your e-waste you can have a box and gather it and just do one trip When you're ready, it's now not allowed to go into the bin and it must be recycled, but not in your household recycling bin. Just, you know, just to be clear, you got to take it to the tip or the recycle center. As mentioned, so check out the links in the podcast page for the Sustainability Victoria links and a few others and all of the stuff that Michael was talking about earlier in the show. Salt. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. 
This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com.